Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, uh, back on the Young Turks, uh, let's have a conversation or the conversation. Uh, joining me now is Dr. Warren Farrell, chair of the commission to create a White House Council on Boys and Men. And he's the author of The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. Dr. Farrell, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you, I'm looking forward to our talking. I, I am too, uh, because I can't quite tell where you are on the political spectrum, so I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I guess I'm um, to the political left. I ran for uh, governor of California as a Democrat, and I was a very strong supporter and fundraiser for um, Hillary Clinton, and um, was um, and you know, very strong opponent of guns. So much so that I got a, a lot of threats when I ran for governor of California. But I also have to, and I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City for three years. So that's sort of my liberal background. But there are some things I found in researching the boy crisis that. Um, that sort of took me a little bit away from the normal liberal path, and that is that I found that the boy crisis, first of all, existed and exists in 63 of the most developed nations. And in those developed nations, there were two things that were happening. One was a huge number of divorces that were permitted in nations that didn't have to worry so much about survival. And then also in the United States, 53% of women who have children under 30, uh, when they're under 30, have children without being married, which leads to a very more than half of those children having very minimal or no contact with their fathers after the age of four. Many don't even know their fathers altogether. And what I discovered was that the boy crisis exists, or the boy crisis resides where fathers do not reside. And so when I began to present this, thinking it would be sort of everybody cares that our boys are doing really well, I expected conservatives and liberals to be very responsive in about an equal amount. Um, but I found that the liberal response was very cautious at best, of sort of saying that we want women to have the freedom to raise children without their dads. And um, and I my background as a feminist was to say, wait a minute, I definitely want women to have freedom. But the moment you make the freedom to you, you take advantage of the freedom to raise children, you take with that freedom comes a responsibility to make sure that the, that that life is going to be optimal for the child. And if we find out that children who have minimal or no father involvement, what I call dad deprived children, 
are doing absolutely terribly for the most part in more than 70 different areas. And these areas are nightmares, like being more likely to commit suicide, um, die from drug overdose. Our ISIS recruiters are almost all dad-deprived boys, ISIS recruits. The mass shooters I discovered in doing the research for the boy crisis are almost all dad-deprived boys. Our prisoners are not only 93% male, but almost all, more than 90% of the prisoners are dad-deprived. And so this all got, and the suicide rate is more predicted by dad deprivation than any other single phenomenon. And so, the, uh, and then I also found that the dad deprivation hurts our daughters as well, but in different types of ways frequently uh, than right. it does with our sons and not as intensely as it is with our sons. So Dr. Farrell, um, can, I can see why progressives might be a little concerned uh, when you say in developed nations where divorce is permitted. Um, so well, you're gonna I'm, have to I'm at least clarify totally, what that means. I'm totally in favor of divorce being permitted, um, but I am in favor of divorce being reduced, not by legislation, but by communication. And I teach communication courses all around the country to help men and women do what is the single biggest thing that that creates a divorce, which is the human beings have an inability to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive. And that leads to both men and women fearing, uh, feeling like they're walking on eggshells and therefore not bringing up the real feelings that are hurting them and, and bothering them. And that oftentimes leads to um, even people who are married often feeling psychologically divorced or what I call in minimum security prison marriages. So that's you know one of the real solutions. But um, I have no, um, I would be very much opposed to anyone that said divorces should not be allowed. Um, although I'm very much a strong supporter of, um, of the couple, of learning how to communicate, not only for adults who are couples, but also I think that that communication process should start in the first and second grade as it does very, um, very, yeah. to very good benefit in Denmark, for example. So Dr. Farrell, look, I, I'm an enormous believer in communication overall. I'm a talk show host. Uh, and I'm a huge believer in uh, communication within marriages. I totally agree with you that that's uh, uh, the number one factor for how to get along better. Understand each other's perspectives uh, yes. because we're not taught to do that overall. Uh, but having read some of your stuff and the way that you're framing the argument, sometimes it feels like you're saying that the onus is on women to keep the men in the marriage. And if not that, at least 50-50, when it feels like most of the time it's men who are choosing to leave, shouldn't the far greater onus be on the men who have, were not in the marriage? And not only not in the marriage, but not taking care of the kids outside of the marriage. Well, first of all, any father that leaves the marriage or and doesn't understand the, his importance to, to children um, really needs to understand that he's of enormous value. I feel that neither men nor women, you can't pick up a book on parenting for the most part um, and find out what the difference is between dad style parenting and mom style parenting and understand why both are so important. So for example, uh, moms and dads, um, you know, obviously this will be reversed in some marriages and some relationships, um, but moms and dads tend to have very different styles. So both, both will tend, for example, to set boundaries in exactly the same way. They'll say, you know, sweetie, you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas. And dads will um, 
And then children will test the boundaries in the same way. They'll say, you know, mom, I had a few peas. Can I have um, my ice ice cream now? And moms will oftentimes go, well, I'm not going to get into a big fight over a few a few peas. I'll tell you what, honey, have a few more ice cream, have a few more peas, and then you can have your ice cream. Uh, whereas dads will tend to a much greater degree to say, sorry, we have a deal here. The deal here is you um, can't have ice cream until you finish your peas. And so what children tend to learn with moms to a greater degree is that they can manipulate a better deal. And with dads, they tend to learn that they don't have any any option but to focus their attention on doing what they need to do, finishing the peas, in order to get what they want to do. And that greater tendency to boundary enforcement is not always a, a good thing, but it has to be in checks and balance mode uh, with the mom's tendency to sort of be empathetic and to, to nurture. Now these, again, these, these are general patterns and sometimes they're reversed. Um, but what we find in home after home, where there isn't a significant amount of father involvement, that the, that the children, both boys and girls, are much less likely to have the, the good bound, the lack of boundary enforcement tends to lead to a lack of postponed gratification, which leads to both the boys and girls doing worse in homework or in other activities like, say, playing baseball or soccer or whatever, um, and where they have to discipline, have the discipline to repeat the routines over and over again to be the best in that sport. Right. And so the, the boys that end up tending to withdraw, become ashamed of themselves, they're not getting any accolades from the teachers, from their, and when it comes to boy-girl time, as a rule, girls tend to date winners, not, uh, and winners means performers. They don't tend to date what they think of as losers. And so the boys who don't, who haven't achieved, don't have that postponed gratification, their, their shame often leads them to withdrawing into video game addiction um, or into porn where they can have access to a variety of attractive women without being afraid of rejection at a price that they can afford. And that, and that, of course, is a, is a, is a major problem of a, addicting the brain to dopamine uh, for increasingly risky activities that, may, that make the girls who finally do get involved with them really um, feel like they're objectified. And that leads the girls to withdraw, reinforce the belief that the boys uh, can't find a girl without being rejected and back into porn again. Right. So, well, okay, Dr. Farrell. Uh, I understand that you studied it uh, and, and you did caveat it twice, but it does seem like there's a very healthy dose of generalization and a little bit of stereotypes in there. So I, I can't question it too much because I don't have the science of how you know the statistics behind uh, the generalizations that you're talking about. But I do wanna move on to another uh, part of this because I, I think, look, you say you agree that we can't obviously force people to stay in marriages. Super obvious, we can't force them to get married in the first place. Uh, that's not what free society does. And I, I believe that marriages are disintegrating because it's not exactly in human nature. Uh, we're not monogamous by nature. So to me, the more interesting question is, how do we get both parents to participate more in raising the children when they're not in marriage? Instead of trying to keep marriage together in a way that seems unsustainable no matter how hard we try. Yes. Well, first of all, I think that the communication issue does help make marriages sustainable or or at least living together or being very close to each other. However, if there's a divorce, 
there, I did, I did discover when I did the research for the boy crisis that, that there's four things that lead to children doing almost as well as they do in an intact family. One is that the mothers and fathers are about equally involved time-wise with the children. Number two is that the father and mother don't live more than about 20 minutes drive time from each other so that the children don't have to resent being at the other parent's home because they're giving up activities or giving up um, uh, friends' birthday parties or whatever. Number three is that there's no bad mouthing or bad body language that the child can detect um, by mom toward dad or by dad toward mom. And number four, there's a really good evidence that uh, ongoing communication counseling from the parents, relationship counseling um, being participated by the parents is extremely important. That's to be distinguished from emergency counseling because during emergency counseling, parents tend to have that under the emergency pressure, uh, they tend to sort of take very serious uh, different sides and they don't hear what the positive intent of the other parent is and what the positive strategies of the other parent is. So those four must, those are what I call the, the four must do's after divorce. And in any family, what is really a must do is family dinner nights. And family dinner nights often evolve in many families into family dinner nightmares. And because the families do oftentimes do not know how to set family dinner nights up in a way that gets rid of all the electronics, that gets everybody speaking, everybody listening before the next person speak, speaks, everybody having a limited amount of time to speak and doing a, a number of things that make family dinner nights produce the outcome of everyone feeling that at the family dinner tape, uh, table, it's a safe space to, uh, to present any feeling that you want, knowing that you're not gonna be interrupted, but that on the other hand, you have a limited time, so you can't um, um, dominate the family conversation. Okay, all right, well that's some at least some suggestions that are interesting and hopefully productive. So Dr. Warren Farrell, thank you for joining us. Uh, everybody, the book is called The Boy Crisis. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. Okay, uh, we gotta take a quick break guys. When we come back, one of the Justice Democrats is back. Uh, she didn't win last time, she did get, uh, uh, did better than uh, people expected. And so some of the Justice Democrats uh, are coming back. You're gonna hear from some of them this week, but the first one today. So come right back and let's have that conversation. All right, uh, back on the Young Turks. Um, it's like the old days again. We're going to talk to just Democrats. Lisa Ring uh, joins us now. She uh, was just Democrat uh, back in 2018 elections. Uh, she ran for Congress in Georgia's first district, and she's going to do it again. Lisa, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. All right, uh, good to have you. Um, so first, let's talk about what happened in 2018, and then let's talk about what we're going to do again in 2020. Uh, so um, it was about 58 to 42, roughly, uh, the election. But you did uh, about five points better than uh, people predicted. So you obviously reached more people uh, than was expected. So first, let's talk about that. Uh, how did you wind up? Uh, doing significantly better than uh, the pundits uh, had that race? Uh, I knew that we would. Uh, I thought we would do even better. And if we had done something about election integrity, which we'll talk about next, uh, the results would have been even better. But it, what was needed was that grassroots campaign where we were out in rural Georgia 
uh, knocking on doors. We were in Savannah and in the urban areas in low income housing. And we were really uh, just trying to empower voters. And that made a huge difference because when we talked to people one on one, uh, they were very receptive to what we were saying and they felt empowered. They felt engaged in the process, which was my goal. Uh, we ended up doing better than any candidate has, Democratic candidate has done in 30 years in this district. Uh, we outraised all other Democratic candidates um, in uh, 26 years and we didn't take any corporate money. And all of our money and all of our support, well, nearly all, came from the first district. It didn't come from outside. So all of this we did without help. We did on our own. And I'm very proud of the people of the first district who volunteered and did the grassroots organizing that we needed to do. Uh, now we have to move forward with what we've done and accomplish even more. And I have a plan for doing that. Um, it's just a matter of having the time and the resources to get it done. Yeah. So. Uh Look, let's try to change that it was almost all from Georgia's first district right now. So everybody, Lisa Ring for Congress.com. <laughs> so if you're anywhere in the country, you could also do small dollar donations to people who are running uncorrupted with no corporate PAC money. You could also volunteer and you see the Act Blue page. The links are always down below in the description box if you're watching later on YouTube or Facebook. Okay, and and uh Look, Lisa was a, is a military spouse, a military mom, a former corrections officer, mother of four, uh, and was also a Bernie Sanders delegate. So I'm interested that you're doing better than than folks uh, suggested, because the conventional wisdom, Lisa, is uh, that if you're a centrist in these red districts, and you can tell by the result that it has been historically a red district, uh, that uh, you would do better if you had a more uh, pro corporate, more big business friendly. Uh, platform, but that has not been your experience. That's not what you're hearing back from the voters. No, and I knew this uh, when I first decided to run. The reason I ran was because I knew that people were ready for a progressive candidate. We have run centrist candidates time after time, and they always lose. And it's because they're not standing strongly for the people of this district. The, what people want is a representative who actually knows about the issues that they care about and is going to do something about them. I don't think that that centrist politics works anymore. It may have worked at one time, but by trying to appeal to people who are essentially Republican, you're not going to win the Democratic base. So I knew that what we needed was a candidate who would stand boldly for progressive issues because that's what the majority of Americans want. Uh, most of the people in this country want a universal health care system. Uh, most people want um, background checks for gun sales. Uh, you know, most people are progressive in this country. And uh, if you take away the labels, and only talk about the issues, educate people, involve them in the political process, that's how we're going to win. And, right. and prove to be right uh, that um, if we can remove the remaining barriers, we are going to flip this district. But we need help to do that. Yeah, and, and so look, you outperformed all the centrist Democrats for the last 30 years. So there's uh, ample proof uh, to your claims. So. Um, 
how much of a difference do you think voter suppression made? Because you're in Georgia, and obviously uh, Georgia was quite famously or infamously um, uh, practicing a lot of voter suppression in that state. I think it made a huge difference. We had places here uh, in Chatham County where people waited four hours to vote, and they ended up leaving. Uh, they have kids to take care of. Uh, they came out, you know, after work, whatever. Um, and that was just one portion of it. We had in rural areas there were plenty of machines. Certain urban areas we didn't have enough machines. Um, we had people who didn't receive their absentee ballots until it was too late. We had people that were purged from the voter rolls. We lost thousands of votes, and that would have made a significant difference. It certainly would have made a difference statewide in the race for governor and so on. Uh, but it also made a difference in the congressional race in this district district and all over Georgia. And unfortunately, um, I just went to a panel at MIT of other candidates that ran across the country. There were about 32 candidates. And we all had similar stories about voter suppression. It seems to have been a plan and it was nationwide. And it's something that we have to address and we have to do something about it if we're going to keep winning elections. Yeah. I think it's fairly obvious that the Republicans have a plan to do voter suppression across the country. They don't really hide it too well. Uh, they've been saying it since 1980 that they don't want a lot of people to vote, and they've been passing laws to try to suppress votes as much as humanly possible. Uh, I think the only ones that are confused about it is the mainstream media who like to call things even when they ain't even. Um, so, but let, let's talk about your strategy to win because you still do have. Uh, a good amount of distance to close here. Uh, you, you did better than everybody else, but uh, 57.7 to 42.3, there's still a lot of room there. Uh, so uh, how do you think you can make up that ground uh, this time around? Uh, there are two things that we have to focus on. Well, well actually three. Um, I was recently elected as the uh, Democratic Party chair of the first district, which will give me the platform to do the work that needs to be done. The first thing that we need to do is do uh, to watch the elections, to go to the Board of Elections meetings in every county. We have 17 counties here in the first district. So if we have people who are going to the meetings, watching the process and being a part of it, who can actually be on the Board of Elections, uh, we are going to ensure that we have a fair election process in the first district. So that's the first. Uh, the second is to continue with the work that we've been doing in rural Georgia. Uh, we made sig significant strides, but we didn't go far enough. And we have to, I need more help. So we need more people, uh, hopefully from the more urban areas, going into the rural areas and helping to organize. Um, and we need more candidates running for uh, all different seats, uh, local and um uh, national as well. We had quite a few candidates that ran for the first time in the last election. We need more. Uh, we need a bigger army to uh, really flip things, turn things around, and make this a democracy that's representing us. So there's a lot of work to be done, and we need the support. We need people who are 100% on board and uh, not just helping You know, when they can. This is important. And we are at a situation where we're fighting 
for the soul of this country. We're fighting for a democracy and we have to keep going. We've come so far this last election. We made gains throughout the country, but we need to go even further. Oh, you need volunteers. Did I mention Lisa Ring for Congress.com slash volunteer? Did I do that? Okay, I think I did. Um, <laughs> so, uh, look, uh, volunteers made a difference in a lot of the just democratic victories. And so, uh, so we know for a fact that it does work. Uh, so, uh, I want to talk about your opponent for a second, um, Buddy Carter. Uh, so, how bad is uh, Representative Buddy Carter? Uh, he's one of the worst. Um, he votes with the current administration most of the time. He is a, a strong proponent of all of his their policies. He was recently named to a um, a committee on climate change, I believe, which is shocking uh, because he until recently didn't even admit that it was happening, and now he says he d- isn't sure that it. He thinks it's um, it's not man-made. Uh, so he's on this committee for climate change, uh, and he'll be making decisions. He gets on the most important committees, like the Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, and he is a pharmacist. He has close ties to the pharmaceutical industry, uh, to the healthcare industry, and uh, his policies show that. He does not represent the working people of this district. He represents corporations. Yeah, that sounds about uh, right for all the Republicans. Uh, And uh, Lisa, he's not on those committees because uh, despite the fact that he doesn't believe in man-made climate change, he's on those committees because of that. Uh, It is funded by the fossil fuel companies to make sure that we don't ever do anything about the catastrophe of climate change. That's why you're absolutely right that it is imperative that we get back out there and fight for candidates that are going to represent us. And and as we saw across the country, it is entirely doable. And Lisa, one last thing I'm just going to say as a comment is I'm really glad that you're running again. Because what people underestimate is the power of name recognition. And you've built up a little name recognition in your district. And so... It's important to build on that base. It makes uh, the chance of winning this time around much greater. So uh, I love that you're back in the fight. So thank you for doing that, and thank you for joining us on the Young Turks. Thank you so much. Okay, uh, guys, we got a half an hour of the show left. This one uh, part is just for the members, uh, but we have two really important stories. One is speaking of just Democrats, um, how they are perceived in Washington, uh, and that's a. Interesting and slightly depressing story, uh, but I got to keep it real with you, and it's important, and you don't hear it anywhere else. And uh, speaking of depressing stories, uh, unarmed black men being shot, uh, and the cops that got away with it. Unfortunately, two pieces of news in that regard just today. So I want to make sure we share it with you guys as we do those extra stories for members. So tyt.com/join to become a member. Going to try it out for a week for free. tyt.com/trial. All right, we'll see you guys there in a minute.